Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about people or organizations having a big impact here in North Texas. I'm your host, Chris Arnold of 105.3 The Fan, and joining us today is Ms. Marsha Clark. She is a former corporate executive, and more importantly, she's an author and speaker. And I've had the pleasure of meeting you over the last couple of months and Marcia, you're just an amazing person altogether. Thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity to to join you today. And yes, we have uh, connected over the last few months, and uh, it was a good connection. Let me I love tell you, and I love your energy. <laughs> thank you. I love yours as well. And I think the message that you have, especially for women, is so powerful. Embracing your power. This is the name of your book: A Woman's Path to Authentic Leadership and Meaningful Relationships. Your message, I said, is, is important for women, but it's just more important for people all together. That's why I've got you on here, because it just it transcends just women. I, I think what you're saying is so profound, especially in today's uh, workforce, in today's world, and especially when everybody's trying to do things together. Can you talk about, well, let's first of all, let's talk about your career, because I remember you were saying uh, one of the times we talked or one of the times I heard you speak that you started your career uh, in, at EDS and you worked That's your right. way up and learned leadership basically because you just grabbed the steering wheel. <laughs> well, that's true. So I joined uh, a technology company, EDS, in 1978 as a secretary. And over the next uh, 21 years that I was there, um, I had the opportunity. I, I, I had both a, a, a career ladder and a career jungle gym, if you will. So I spent about half my time in support type roles, um, HR, strategy, alliances, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then other half in customer facing roles where I had responsibility for the financials, responsibility for customer relationships, responsibility for service development and delivery. And so had a, a wide range of leadership uh, experiences and learned from some of the very best leaders, I think, around. And I still uh, teach and use many of the leadership lessons that I learned there because they're still as relevant today as they were then. But I learned about change. I learned about growth. I learned about uh, the human factor. And I believe that uh, leadership is really a profession. And I found out that I was a pretty good leader and that I was pretty good at developing other leaders. And that's been what my uh, business has been focused on for the last 24 years. 
Now, you mentioned leadership, and we're going to get into the leadership mindset that you talk about. But let's, let's, let's let everybody know about your credibility. Let's talk about some of your responsibilities, and that kind of shows how your leadership was able to work so well because you, they gave you more and more and more responsibility, and some of those areas were things that you didn't necessarily know about initially. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> I, <laughs> call myself an avid and agile learner. And people often ask me, you know, how did you go from secretary to corporate officer of a Fortune 50 company? And I said, I took things off my boss's to-do list rather than putting them on. And that I demonstrated over time that I could go into a situation, I could assess and diagnose the issues, the challenges, if you will. And then I could rally the troops and the smartest people around to figure out how to go fix it. So it was a collaborative uh, approach. It was a learner's, uh, um, you know, approach to, um, I don't know all the answers, but I'm going to figure them out and I'm not going to be afraid to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to continue to contribute more and more and more. And so I call it the opportunistic way of managing one's career is I changed jobs about every 18 to 24 months because we were growing so quickly. The company went from 5,000 to 145,000 people while I was there. So we went from six countries to over uh, 67 with 67 countries when I left and 350 million to 18 and a half billion in revenue. So that ride was an amazing ride and leadership was what was the um, really the the core of the company. And um, I, I say it's what I was raised on, if you think about it from a corporate perspective. And the, and the opportunities were tremendous. I, you know, I led all of our leadership development. I led all of our human resource and people development activities. And I was also president of our healthcare business unit where I managed about 2,500 people around the world and about 40 clients and uh, upwards of 1 billion in revenue. So um, big, hard, complex <laughs> and, and fascinating. And, and again, uh, I love learning. So it, it, it fed right into my sweet spot. Can you talk and share with our listeners the story about how they asked you to be in charge and lead the healthcare when that wasn't necessarily what you were doing at the time. Well, that that is one of my fun stories. So my boss at the time calls me in, calls me up and he says, can you be in my office at one o'clock this afternoon? And I said, well, I got another meeting. And he said, well, cancel it because I need you to be in my office. And he didn't ask me to do those kinds of things very often. So I knew I needed to do it. And I showed up in his office at one o'clock and he said, well, Marsha, as of tomorrow, you're going to be president of our healthcare business unit. And being the woman that I am, I said, but I don't know anything about healthcare because I'd never worked in that part of our business. And he said, Marsha, I'm not putting you over there because of your healthcare experience. There's 2,500 people who know healthcare frontwards and backwards. I'm putting you over there because I need you to improve our customer relationships. We're having a little, you know, um, challenges with some of our clients. I need you to get them to pay us for the services that we've rendered because some of those problems were such that they were not paying us. Oh, yeah. And I need you to come in and I need you to get the employees reengaged and, you know, feeling better about and motivated and inspired to do great work um, for those clients, even when they're hard clients. And so... That's what I did. I went over there and he said, as of tomorrow morning, you're going to meet with the outgoing president at 7 a.m. And, and then you're in. And I went, 
okay. <laughs> you know, and so it, you know, we don't always manage our careers with intentionality, but what I came to trust in my EDS world, because I trusted the people there. And of course, trust is foundational to all of our relationships. Um, I, I could, I, I went into that job knowing that I had the support of that boss and knowing that we'd figure it out and we'd figure it out together. You know, you also made a transition and see, I'm, t- I'm telling your story first and then we're going to get into some of your leadership mindset because your, your leadership skills are just absolutely amazing. And I'm so glad you wrote this book, but I wanted to talk about how you wound up leaving EDS because sometimes people are, they have that situation that they have to ponder themselves, a career choice and a career change because you had been there so long, especially from basically some of the beginning days. Well, it was. And I will tell you at the time, after 21 years growing up there and having opportunities beyond my wildest imagination, um, I assumed that I would, you know, work there until I retired and right. happily and and yet what happened in the late 90s is that an outside CEO was brought in and he was the first external CEO that we'd ever had it was founded by Ross Perot Mort Meyerson was our CEO Les Alberthal was our CEO we'd only had three in that time period and they brought someone in from the outside and it took it was about a nine-month period where here, here's the way it worked. The first three months was getting to know him. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, Chris, I've never had a boss that I couldn't figure out how to work for and be successful. This was the first time in my career, and I was in my late 40s. Um, it was the first time in my career that what I realized is I didn't want to figure out how to work for him because it would have been, it would have required more of me in ways that I was not willing to give. And what I mean by that, there was a real misalignment on the values that that new CEO represented and how he wanted to run our company and do business and treat people. And it was different from the the world I had grown up in. And I always felt like I was successful at EDS because my personal values aligned with the organization's values. Mm -hmm. It's no longer true. And so after those first three months, I will share with your listeners, this was a, the next three months was, do I stay? Do I go? Stay? Do I go? And it was agonizing because I'd never imagined having to make the decision. And I laughingly tell people that, you know, I came home one day and my sweet husband, Dale, was, you know, well, Marcia, just quit. Marcia, just quit. Because he wanted me to to get out of the agony (laughs) that I was living at the time. And he said something to me one day that may not make sense to anybody, but it, it really clicked with me, which was, Marsha, we've been rich and we've been poor. Now, I want to just say rich is a relative term, but mm-hmm. we, we, we were financially secure and didn't have to worry about that. And he said, and we admittedly, we like rich a whole lot better, but we can do whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. And we're going to do it and we're going to do it together. And suddenly that gave me the relief and, and almost the, Oh, he's right. You know, whatever we do, I'm not alone in this. This is, we're going to do this together. And so that became really a catalyst for me then going into my boss at the time, who was the vice chair and saying, I can't do it anymore. And so 
then those last three months, and this is a very strategic move that I offer to your listeners as well, which is make sure you exit well. And so, you know, I saw the lawyer to write the resignation letter to make sure I got all the things I was supposed to get because this was a CEO who was trying to shortchange people left and right. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was, as I say, it was really hard, but it was the best decision I made um, as well as the biggest one, because it allowed me then to move into a place that, uh, you know, I, I was meant to be. And, you know, I, I tell the story about job, career, calling and purpose mm-hmm. and really feel like the, you know, calling is when we get to play to our strengths and purpose is when we're living our passion as well as playing to our strengths. And the, the work that I've done as an entrepreneur in the last 20, almost 25 years um, really has been uh, living that purpose. And so, I you know, sometimes we got to have a, a kick in the rear to get us out to be doing what we need to be doing. And I feel like that was what that offered to me. We're talking with Marsha Clark. She's a speaker and author. She's with Marsha Clark and Associates. And she's got this book that's absolutely amazing. I ask everybody to pick it up. It's called Embracing Your Power. A Woman's Path to Authentic Leadership and Meaningful Relationships. You mentioned the decision to leave. Did you have a plan B? <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't know what I was going to do. And that's, you know, I thought myself rather crazy, but I also knew I wasn't alone and I was going to figure it out, just like I've always figured things out as I've moved through life. And so um, in in my uh, leaving, I will tell you the first the first week or so, I slept a lot because I was tired and depressed just that grieving sense of loss. Uh, And then, you know, I uh, laughingly say I I cleaned out my closets. I organized my junk drawers. I did filing that needed to be done for, you know, 20 years. And then I'm twiddling my thumbs going, what do I do now? And, you know, moving into this entrepreneurial role uh, was not, again, not some great strategic plan or vision Uh, But a friend called up and said, hey, I'm working on this engagement with a client and need some help. Would you come help me? And I did. I fell in love with it. And, you know, then, um, you know, the rest they say is history. I continue to do that today. So have been successful in developing and delivering uh, leadership development programs. I do executive coaching, wrote the book that was published in 22 um, and then also doing podcasts uh, since September of 21, and am in the process of writing the second book. Um, the first book is focused, when you think about leadership, the first book is focused on self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Who am I as a leader? Who am I as a woman leader? Who am I as a powerful woman leader? Who am I as an authentic powerful woman leader. And then also talking about the importance of interpersonal relationships. And and the second book in the context of leadership is going to be expanding your power, a woman's opportunity to inspire teams and influence organizations. And with that in mind, we're going from self-awareness to interpersonal, to team, to organizational which I think covers the broad spectrum uh, of what leadership and professional life is about. And you mentioned that um, leadership, the way I view it is that leadership is a mindset. Yeah. It's not a job title. It's not a box on an org chart. It's how I choose to live my life. And am I going to live my life 
uh, in alignment with my values mm-hmm. and uh, play to my strengths and understand my passion and purpose? Am I going to live up to and serve something bigger than myself? Um, and, and to me, that's also a big part of the purpose-driven life. Yes. It's in service. And we can do that from, you know, any chair we're sitting in or any role that we're playing in our lives. And I also think that leadership is a profession that if you can, if you're a leader and I believe we lead people and we manage processes and things, policies and so on, but we lead people. If you're a good leader, you can go lead almost any time, any place, anywhere. And I had that experience again and again um, in going and doing things I'd never done before, but having a leadership mindset and being that avid and agile learner is what enabled me to get to have all the experiences that I've accumulated over time uh, in my 70 years. It is absolutely amazing. Your story is just so fundamentally sound, but it's so logical. It's, it's kind of like when you, when you decide to do what you do for a living, I think most people would choose to have a career other than a job. And if you're going to be a leader, that's, that's the definition of a career. You may, you may not have the top job as a CEO, but if you know what you're doing and you're authentic to yourself, you can have that career. Can you talk about right. as a woman, some of the obstacles that different women, if not yourself, have had to go through the glass ceilings or, or how people will assume that you're the secretary and not necessarily the manager, some of those situations and how you were able to over- overcome those and still maintain a leadership mentality? Yeah. So, you know, I, I say I had two older brothers growing up uh, and I was a big tomboy. So I was out playing baseball and mm-hmm. you know, climbing trees, doing all that kind of stuff all the time anyway. And I never realized how valuable that would be for me in my, you know, professional life. And because I've dealt with, you know, primarily men uh, for really the first 30 years in my professional career. And what I will tell you is I um, I can be one of the boys in the sense of I can talk sports with them. I can, you know, hang with them. I can joke with them. I sure. can, you know. I've seen you at Maverick games. You you can hold your own. Well, that's right. That's right. I'm there. And uh, that part works. But what what I also know is that even though the women look at me and say, you know, she's one of the boys club, right? She can connect with them and she gets things done and they listen to her and so on. And yet the men, I am one of the boys with them, but I'm, but, but it's a, it's a fragile thing. I'm not really one of the boys, but they kind of let me in the circle, right? Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, uh, I have this continuum that I use in it, it and uh, to talk about this, and there's masculine and feminine in all of us. And so there are feminine females and there are masculine females. There are feminine males and there are masculine males. And what I'll tell you is that I'm a masculine female. So I've developed, and this, this has served me well, I've developed those things that are that tend to be seen as more masculine traits, which is standing up for what you believe in, right. asserting your point of view and position, even you know speaking truth to power ways. Um, and so, in other words, uh, you don't cower very often. I don't, and and part of what has led to my success in business is my clients. I've sat in the chair or a similar chair to many of them. 
So I have great empathy for how hard their jobs are. At the same time, I tell them, you can't blow smoke up my skirt and tell me things you can't do. Yeah. Because I'll tell you, you can, because I have. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, and let's talk about what those possibilities might be for you. And so that's really a part of the credibility that I bring is, is both sides of that is the, you know, don't BS me. And I, your job is really hard and I'm here to help you and support you in whatever way I can. Now you've, you've talked about, you know, purpose-driven life and I fully believe into that. And that's how you can be successful as well. But you're, you also talk about being true to yourself as a, as a part of the leadership mindset. Can you talk about how those intertwine? Yeah. So, you know, being true to yourself is about, first of all, knowing what your values and, and I'll call them life principles are. Mm-hmm. Know what your leadership stand is. In, in all of my long-term programs, we they culminate with each person having written and sharing a, a leadership stand. And it's anywhere from 50 to 100 words. And it's about not what I do as a leader, but who I am as a leader. And I think that when I get clear about that, then I am willing to speak up and be courageous. And even when it's hard, and I am going to support others and give them an open opening and a space to do the same. So, for me, leadership is very mutual. It's reciprocal, you, you know, and, and I look at life almost on a series of continuums. There's a time to be quiet and there's a time to speak up. There's mm-hmm. a time to go slow and there's a time to go fast. And, and I can give you a thousand of those kinds of continuums. And one of my principles about leadership is good leaders know they have a toolkit and they're constantly trying to enrich that toolkit, put more tools in, have more options, because that's what tools give you. And yet great leaders know what tool to use when. And one of my foundational elements is the answer to every leadership question is it depends. And that's where you want to get into a conversation with yourself and being true to yourself that says, you know, what are the variables I need to take into account based on the results we're trying to achieve and the relationship I want to either build, strengthen, sustain, enrich as a result of working together on whatever result it is we're trying to accomplish. And to me, that's me being true to myself. People often ask me, so Marsha, what's your leadership stay in? And I don't share it with them before they do their own, because this is a very personal process for you to describe mm-hmm. yourself. Um, but, but what I say to people is this. I have a little mantra, and it is, may the love that I've shared, the truth that I've told, the work that I've done speak for me. And, and I can talk about it all day long, but people are going to believe what they see me do, mm-hmm. experience me doing. And, and so we can talk about it all day, but does my life represent what I value? And is it part of that core of being me? And you know what? I, I think it helps you make decisions because you can sleep oh, at night yes. knowing that it's true to what you think, that you believe in the, who and who you are. 
Well, that's absolutely right. I, I said it, uh, once I made that clear decision to leave EDS, I woke up, I slept better that night and I woke up with the clarity of how to move forward in alignment with those values and being able to get up in the morning, look myself in the mirror and like who I saw. What role does intuition play in the leadership mm-hmm. mindset? Because I think a lot of people feel something, either they're, they're like, I have, I have a feeling. Yes. So, and, and um, we could, we could do a whole show on what role intuition plays <laughs> lives and it's a lot of it's based on our brain physiology our brains work very quickly everything's connected to everything else and so um, we can arrive at um, a belief uh, an intuition a feeling uh, a gut level whatever you might call it because our brains work so quickly we go from point a to kind of point z and we don't know all the stops along the way so that's where uh, if we if our brains were more compartmentalized, we followed a step by step, you know, kind of procedure. And so without that, we are, you know, uh, going from A to Z and mm-hmm. not being able to identify how we got there. And we as women, if we can't show our work or show the logic or the process, then um, sometimes our intuition is is kind of di- di- dismissed or demanded. yeah, they don't want to believe it. They're like, that's right. They want you to prove that's it. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I used to go to my boss and I would say, I think we ought to do X, Y, Z. And he would say, well, where's the data? And mm-hmm. I was, I don't have any data. <laughs> and, and he would say, well, you need to bring me some data. Well, what I learned in that process was you can find data to support whatever it is you want to do. Good, bad, or ugly. That's true. And so I was, I would go find the data, but I would, but, but to give it it's fair, because I'm all about the fairness and I got to make sure I've been thorough. I would look at a lot of data and he he would, the the same boss would say, triangulate the data, which means bring me three different sources. And I would bring three different sources that might all say different things that you don't know what you want to choose, but then I would understand. And I would always have the business case that supported that choice. And, and I also want to be clear, sometimes my intuition put me in the right direction, but was either incomplete because I needed to go deeper or incomplete because I needed to go broader. And so it, that the evidence-based and data-based decision-making that every organization requires, uh, I learned a lot in the process of starting with my, my intuition and my gut instincts. And, and I also just want to say this, uh, that someone, I think it was Wayne Dyer that said this, we speak to God in prayers. God speaks to us through our intuition. And that resonates uh, mm-hmm. because my faith is a strong faith. And, you know, faith to me is, I don't know the answers, but I'm moving ahead anyway. Right. And, and I'm going to learn and I'll, you know, no such thing as the last choice because there's always a next choice. Right. Moving through all of that, I learned to trust my intuition, um, but and then go back it up uh, because practically speaking, I think that um, is what gives our our business cases more credibility and legitimacy. You know, you've led so many different groups of people, like you said, from all over the world, people with different backgrounds. You know, not just women, not just men, people of color, people of all different age demographics. And you tell a story when you speak about differences 
and either respecting differences or understanding differences, but recognizing that not everybody has the same story. And I love it. I'm going to let you, I want you to share it again because it it has a a great impact and it has a respect value for all those involved. Can you tell that story? Yeah. So, so I want to, let me kind of set it up just sure with a quote by Arthur Chan that I use all the time. And that is that diversity is a fact. There are 8 million people in this world and each one of us is unique in some way. So it's not a matter of, do we want diversity? We have diversity on every possible dimension. So diversity is a fact. The second is that equity is a choice. It's a choice that we individually make, that we organizationally make, that we institutionally make of, are we going to give people equal and fair opportunities, opportunities for promotions, opportunities for job assignments, opportunities for raises, and so on. So that is a choice that we make of letting people into our circles and building the relationships accordingly. And the third is that inclusion is an action. And and this, to me, is where a couple of things come into play. Uh, For me, inclusion is giving everyone an opportunity to contribute their best thinking and their best work. And that we do that by invitation, and it can't just be one time, it has to be a consistent way of inviting people in. And when they speak, giving weight and consideration to what they offer. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the actions we can take. And a part of that is creating what's often referred to as psychological safety which is the basis of relationships. It's the basis of trust. And that just because your life experience and therefore your truth is something, you can fill in the blank with that. And just because that's not been my life experience and is not the truth that I tell about my life experience doesn't make one more valid than the other. And, and just, just to wrap up that Arthur Chan quote, belonging is an outcome. And mm-hmm. I'll say a couple of things. I'm going to go back to the inclusion piece. And just because your truth is not my truth doesn't make it any less valid. Um, you may be thinking about the story that I told um, at the Mavericks Women's Business Summit. Yes. And this is, this is a real story. So we were doing a, a rather, you know, um, innovative new leadership program at EDS, and we had done um, a, a pilot of it. And we were now going around and telling our executive leaders about it to determine if we wanted to do it again. And so one gentleman who was describing his experience as a program participant in this pilot spoke and said it was a life-changing experience. And, um, you know, That was his truth and that was his experience. And so it is what it is. And there was a gentleman there who was a crusty old guy. And he said, and I'll, if if, if possible, I'll do my little. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. The voice of him, he said, you know, I've had a gun held to my head in Vietnam and that's a life-changing experience. No training program could be a life-changing experience. Hmm. I'm sitting there going, oh gosh, what do I do? I mean, I, you know, I, I had no set response for that. I didn't anticipate it. I didn't see it coming. And so this is one of those moments when I say there was divine intervention. And, and I said to this gentleman, I said, I cannot imagine how awful that must have been. I, My heart goes out to you. And I hope I never had the experience of having a gun held to my head. And I also want to say I've had a baby. That was a life-changing experience too. And not one that you can have. Yeah. And so yours was valid. Mine was valid. Mm-hmm. And so participants, you know, truth and experience valid. So let's be open to the fact that there are all kinds of different life-changing experiences and, and let's receive those in a way that we can, we can respect and honor that. And, and so exactly that is, you know, just your truth, my truth, someone else's truth, just because I haven't lived that doesn't mean I can't have empathy and compassion because the compassion part of that is I can't walk a mile in that shoe with you. And yet I can still get behind you and support you and love you unconditionally. And to me, that's a big part of really what leadership is, is, is giving people that psychological safety, acknowledging that. And what I say to leaders and clients all the time is, what the, the one of the most basic fundamental human needs is that we need to be seen, heard, and valued. And the inclusive action of really creating an, a, a, an environment that does that is, I know what you're doing, what you're doing is important, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate you. And we just don't take time uh, often enough to provide that sort of supportive, loving feedback to people who are doing amazing things. And just to wrap up this piece, the, the, the idea of belonging is an outcome. I, I want to differentiate between fitting in mm-hmm. and because fitting in is me uh, doing something so that I can conform to someone else's definition of who I should be or how I should be showing up. Yeah. That to me is the opposite of authenticity. 
And the, uh, the sense of belonging is that you're going to accept me for who I am. You're going to hear my life experiences, my life story, my truths, and you're going to give them respect and you're going to give them attention and you're going to give them weight and consideration. And that's how we give people a sense of belonging. Yes. And it makes people feel fundamentally happy, not only with themselves, but their careers. It it makes them want to show up at work. It makes them want to feel like they have a a purpose-driven life, a well-balanced life. It makes them not say, you know what, I have to quietly quit this organization because I do not feel whole. I don't think they respect me over here. And they also know that there are other opportunities in other organizations that may fit the bill better, and they don't just have to fit in. Marcia, you are just such a wonderful person. I'm so glad that you're my friend. I can say that you're my friend. You're so knowledgeable and you're so, there's just so many things people can learn from not only your books, but all the different platforms that you're on. I'm glad you're sharing some time with us today. And you know, we've got to have you back on again real soon, maybe sometime before the year is over. Well, I, you know, I'm happy to do that. My, my big word, um, the last two years has been accessibility because you know, people ask me all the time, where were you when I was 25? Where were you? When <laughs> yeah. I was you know, all those kinds of things, which is a part of the reason I wrote the book and do the podcast. And so I want to give this information to as many people as possible in a way that, that, that they find value in and, and that can make their lives more purpose-driven and more fulfilling. So I just appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, you and I met a very long time ago and then many years passed and here we are again. So I appreciate the friendship as well, Chris. And, you know, I'll be happy to come back and share whenever you're ready. Most definitely. And it's not just knowledge, it's wisdom. She is Marsha Clark. You can find her work at MarshaClarkAndAssociates.com. And of course, you can pick up the current book, Embracing Your Power. And again, you've got, you're working right now on the second book. And what will it be called? It's called Expanding Your Power, A Woman's Opportunity uh, to Inspire Teams and Influence Organizations. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you. Our next guest is Miss Liz Lawless. She's the executive director of the Cowboys of Color Rodeo. How you doing, Liz? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me. You know, you and I go way back, and I'm so glad to finally have you on the show because there's a lot of people who've either heard of the Cowboys of Color Rodeo or they've never heard of the Cowboys of Color Rodeo. And I think it's such a fascinating story that, well, what do you know? They've made a documentary about it. (laughs) Right, right. Well, it's so funny, Chris, because everybody's heard of the rodeo. Mm -hmm. But then when you say, have you been to a rodeo? (laughs) Right. They they have actually. There's a long pause. Yeah. It's like, well, I've been meaning to. I've heard about it. and just hadn't had a chance to yet. Let's let's start from the beginning. There is a documentary out, and we'll get into Uh that a little bit later, but. Way back when, our mutual friend, Cleo Herm, and his, his family, they started the rodeo. And here's right. a pull-the-curtain-back moment. Cleo and my mom, Anita Arnold, grew up together, went to grade school in a little town in Oklahoma. And that's how long I've been knowing Cleo and the Cowboys of Color Rodeo. So I'm just impressed with not only his career, but the fact that, you know, he's getting all of his flowers right now. He's getting in all these different Hall of Fames. He's getting acknowledged, and I mean, the awards just continue to come. But let's talk about, right. and that's a, that's exciting for us, Chris, because you know it's so funny because Cleo just 
you know, all he wanted to do was be a cowboy. Yeah. You know, he never really wanted to produce rodeos, but you know, when they said to him, well, if it changed one kid's life, would you do it? You know, then he had to do it. And, you know, and he wanted to help the kids coming on. And of course he had four boys and he wanted it to be an easier road for them than he had. But, um, you know, he would never let us induct him. You know, he would never let us put his name forward for any of the awards programs because he always wanted his guys that mentored him to get in, get in first. Yeah. You know, he wanted the Marvell Rogers and the Rufus Green seniors and the Murtis Dykemans. You know, he wanted in the Bud Brandwells. He wanted those guys who helped him. He wanted them to go in first, Ray mm -hmm. Barner down in, uh, you know, uh, down in South Texas. And so we finally, you know, now we're, <laughs> we're finally getting him, you know, I his, guess he's decided it's finally prouds. his time. Yeah. You know? How old is he right now? He'll be 84 on May the 3rd. So we're right going to be the making a big announcement then. I might give you a teaser. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can do that. Today. Yeah, we can do that. So, so let's let's talk about when he started the Cowboys of Color Rodeo because, believe it or not, there were Cowboys of Color for years and years and years, and they were in, quote-unquote, the traditional rodeos that we've always heard about, or maybe all of them could, couldn't get a chance, even though they can rope and round up cattle and do all the tricks that everybody else could do. Could you talk about how he started it and some of the legends, you mentioned some of their names, and about, you know, the opportunities? Well, for Cleo, like you say, he started in 1959. He was 16 years old. And when he started roping and uh, he didn't have a horse and, you know, but somebody else, uh, up at, you know, the wonderful uh, group up in Oak Mulkey, uh, they saw him, they, they knew he was always hanging around and they knew he was a smart kid and he was determined and he, you know, he was respectful. And so they let him ride one of their horses, but you know, they had, he, these were black rodeos in mm -hmm. Oklahoma. And luckily, you know, in Texas and Oklahoma, especially Oklahoma, they have black towns. Yes. And so they had black and Indian rodeos and of course, Indian native Americans. So Cleo first roped in those rodeos, but the, the, the white rodeos or the professional rodeos, even though he became a professional cowboy and paid his entry fee and became a member of the PRCA. It was called the RCA back then, Rodeo Cowboy Association. Mm -hmm. Now it's called PRCA, which is Professional Rodeo Cowboy Association. They more, you know, they've changed over the years like everybody else. But he he couldn't ride during the regular rodeos because he was black, because of the color of his skin. And so they he could ride after the rodeo or before the rodeo. But what happened is they posted the times and that was their mistake. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the Olympics. When you see the times, you see right, seven because, seconds or left when you're roping a bull or whatever it is, or riding a bull. Yeah. And yeah. Cleo had better time. He had the best times. And then the, so the audience kept going, well, who's that Cleo Hearn guy? We didn't get to see him. How could he have a, you know, a better time than the guy that won, you know? And so it was the the audience and the other cowboys that had respect for him that forced the promoters to let him rope. That's uh, amazing. It's, it's kind of like it's, it's kind of like in baseball. You had the Negro Leagues and then you had the Major yeah. Leagues. Right, exactly. And so he started the rodeo. I mean, actually, he he did his very first rodeo, nineteen seventy two, and in Harlem, New York, for ten thousand kids. And that's what I say these these people saw him at a rodeo and. Uh, they had him come up. The uh, they're called assemblymen up there, basically what our council people are mm -hmm. down here. And 
they said, you know, would you bring a rodeo to produce a rodeo up here in, in Harlem? And he was like, you know, I don't produce rodeos. I'm a calf roper. You know, I just want to win a national championship. You know, that's all he wanted to do. And he had just won in 1970 at the Denver National Western. He was the first African-American to win a national calf roping championship at a big rodeo, at a PRC professional rodeo. And so he had just won that. And so they had asked him to do this, but they're the ones that said, you know, if it helped one kid, would you do it? And so yeah. he thought about it all the way back, coming back to, you know, to Texas and he got here and, and they, the guys, his guys that we talked about earlier, Rufus Sr., Marvell, some of those guys, they had created a Texas Black Rodeo Association because they couldn't get, you know, they weren't able to get in as much with the with the RCA. Mm -hmm. Um, there were a few of them like, uh, like Cleo and, and Bud and, uh, you know, some of those guys, but there weren't very many that they let in. And so that's how it started. Um, and then 1985, the African-American museum asked him to do a rodeo as a fundraiser. And that really is what started the continual. We've had a rodeo every year since 19, um, 85, you know, and it's so. been in different towns and cities all over the Southwest, right? Can you name some of the stops? Right. Yeah, for sure. And so what we did was in 2000, we actually changed the name. It used to be the Texas black invitational rodeo, um, because it was for the African-American museum. And then other people began to ask us, you know, Fort Worth asked us to bring the rodeo over there for a cultural center. Um, and so we did that. And so we had a couple of the rodeos and then, um, and then we decided to do a tour. And when we started to do the tour, we said, Cleo said, you know, I'm half African-American and half Native American. Mm -hmm. And I want to be inclusive of all cultures. You know, he didn't care for the fact that that he couldn't rope one another. So he wanted it to be inclusive. And so he changed the name to Cowboys of Color Rodeos. And for those, that means all colors. Yeah, you know, black, white, Hispanic, rabbit, right. brown, Pink, Asian, everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're all different colors. We're light brown, we're dark brown, yeah. we're black, you know. I mean, even white is, is a yeah. different color, you know, and pink and, and mm -hmm. ivory and whatever, you know. And so he wanted to be inclusive. And that's what we did. And we started a tour, a seven city tour. We went to Oklahoma City. Of course, that's home for, you know, your family and Cleo's family or mm -hmm. Cleo and uh, Houston, Austin, San Antonio. And then we added Tulsa. And then we added the finals at Mesquite. So basically, um, the Cowboys and Cowgirls would compete throughout the year at the other rodeos. And the best ones got to come to Mesquite for the finals um, because Cleo had always established it based on PRCA rules. You know, mm -hmm. he wants to train these younger kids, men and women, so that they know how to act, how to dress, how to talk in case somebody puts a camera in front of their face. And because he understood that there was opportunity and you never knew when the opportunity was going to come because exactly. that's how it happened to him. You know, somebody just walk up to the rodeo and say, can I take your picture? You know, mm -hmm. um, can you, you know, would you come to a meeting? We want you to produce a rodeo, <laughs> you know? I mean, those things just happened for him and he did commercials work too. You he know? sure did. So, We'll talk about that in a minute. No, let's go ahead and to, talk but... about it. Yeah, we're talking, by the way, with Liz Lawless. She's the executive director of the Cowboys of Colorado Rodeo. And we're talking about the, 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 the legend who created the rodeo. We're talking about Cleo Hearn. And you mentioned that he started doing some commercials. Let's talk about that. 
Yeah, so when Cleo, basically what happened is Cleo went to, to college. Uh, he went to Oklahoma, uh, I guess, University, Oklahoma State University. They had a rodeo club. Well, they canceled the rodeo club because they wanted them all to play football, of course. And so mm-hmm. Cleo quit. <laughs> and guess what? He got drafted because <laughs> it was the 60s, right? Yeah. So he got drafted into the army and he got, he was in basic training, you know, and he called his mother and he said, well, mom, there's been some kind of mistake here. And, and she said, yeah, and you made it. I told you to stay in school. Okay. And so he was like, you know, are you kidding me? And so anyway, he was the last guy giving his orders. Doesn't know how it happened. Uh, but he was a soldier now. Things, but, but we know why it happened because of his character and his discipline and mm-hmm. his work ethic and his, personality so funny and humorous yeah you know never meets a stranger he always treats everybody well um but he got assigned for the one of the first eight african americans to serve in the presidential honor guard with president kennedy wow and so he served his couple of years there he died he, he retired basically to go back to school at langston university to get his degree hbc so important to his mother and him and 23 days, I think, before Kennedy was killed in Dallas, of mm-hmm. course. And so, of course, he was heartbroken and because they had a very nice relationship and said only time in all his life that he didn't put his horse up because he came in and his wife, Verna, they had just they had re- just had married right before that. And mm-hmm. had said, you know, something terrible has happened that the president has been shot. They didn't know at that time that he'd been killed. And so they came in and watched all the new stuff. But but he went to Langston University. He was the first African-American to get, you know, to go to school on a rodeo scholarship, got his degree. Same thing. He's at a rodeo. Some people saw him. They said, we need a black guy or an African-American to do a tractor commercial for Ford Tractor. Mm-hmm. And would you do it? So, of course, Cleo said, sure, I'd be glad to do it. You know what I'm, you know, what I have to, you just have to sit on the tractor and drive it around a little bit or what? <laughs> you know, whatever. And so, um, there was a guy standing over in the back watching this whole stuff. Never really said anything until, you know, all the stuff was going on, all the lights and the cameras and the action, they, they shot everything. And, and then this fella came over, the gentleman came over to him and he said, well, well, you know, Cleo, what do you, what do you do besides rodeo? And he said, well, I just graduated with a, you know, with a business degree from Langston university. And they said, well, how would you like to join the Ford tractor uh, management? team and um so he said what and he said yeah he said you know you want to come in for an interview and uh you know see what happens and so he did went to work for ford tractor later on he moved over to ford trucks and he was with them over 30 years okay hold on hold on hold on because this is what's so funny my mind is whirling Liz, are you about to tell me this is how he got involved with the dallas cowboys too because he was always down there with tom landry That's it. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. So working at Ford, he was a zone manager. He worked his way up. He was in sales, you know, before in the early days. And then he worked his way up. And what's really funny, Chris, he's the only person I know that didn't have to move off somewhere that worked for a car company. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of friends whose fathers were probably, you know, parents worked in the car industry and they had to move to Detroit or they had to move to Chicago or somewhere Mm -hmm. Midwest. Well, Cleo always wrote it into his contract that he didn't have to leave Texas and Oklahoma because he knew that way he could get to a rodeo on the there weekend. You go. <laughs> <laughs> and they liked him so much they did it. Yeah. Because, you know. 
but he did. He worked for Ford, and then some part, you know, somehow part of his duties. They asked him to pick up the umpires, the referees. Yeah, was a sponsor of the Cow Dallas Cowboys. Well, Cleo would go to the airport, pick the referees up, take them to the hotel, and then pick them up and take them to the games. So he was always, he got to stand around, you know. Yeah, he's always on the sidelines. I'd I'd be down there at the sidelines, and there's Cleo over there with Tom Landry. I mean, it was like, Cleo, he's he's a cowboy, and now he's a Dallas cowboy. (laughs) It's like, this is crazy. Yeah, and he he loved that. He had a great time all those years. And he he retired from that probably about 10 years ago when they they started carrying carrying a weapon, you know, because the crowds got rowdy, and they Mm -hmm. started throwing things at the umpires and stuff when people got kind of crazy. They wanted him to carry a gun. He said, you know, I'm what, 60, 70 years old. I've never carried a gun in my life and I'm not starting now. Yeah. And um, so he, re- he retired from, you know, picking up the umpires because of that. But, uh, but yeah, he had, had great, great time for uh, probably at least 20 years. I oh think, yeah, for sure. So let, let's talk about his four boys and how they got involved with the business. You can go ahead and say their names and then we'll get into the grandson in just a second. Okay. So, uh Cleo's got four boys. They all went to school on rodeo scholarships. They all rodeo professionally and they all, you know, now have good jobs working and raising families. And now, like you say, grandkids and great grandkids coming on. Mm-hmm. But Harlan's the oldest. Yep. Uh, Eldon's the next oldest. Robbie is the third. And then Wendell's the youngest. And so, um, uh, you know, Harlan has taken the lead. I right. mean, Cleo's 84, we've talked about. So, uh, the boys are continuing the legacy. Uh, Cleo, basically, we're celebrating 50 years of producing rodeos and 70 years of him being a, a professional cowboy. He actually roped all those years until he was 79. Uh, he roped competitively. Um, and so now the boys are taking over. We're transitioning. It's, you know, it's doing, they're, Harlan's doing a great job. Uh, you know, he's kind of taken on the role mm-hmm. of being the spokesperson. Wendell handles the Cowboys and Robbie and Eldon are all, you know, always helping. And Eldon kind of manages the arena and, and Robbie, you know, Robbie helps with whatever needs to be, you know, helped with. And then, of course, you know, uh, talked about uh, his uh, son here in a minute. But, um, yeah, so they've they've been in the business. They're keeping they the kids. tradition going. Yeah, they've been in the business the whole time, working behind the scenes. And, mm-hmm. Can you talk about, can you talk about before we, no, let's just go ahead and talk about one particular grandson, because we talked about Cleo and the family being, you know, rodeo cowboys, cowboys from the ranch. And then we talked about him, his dealings with the Dallas Cowboys football team. He's actually got a grandson that is a pitcher in major league baseball for the Texas Rangers. He's, of course, Taylor Hearn. Can you talk about I've, – I've talked to Taylor a number of times about this. He's a huge Dallas Maverick fan, by the way, as well. But right, Taylor sure, Taylor, sure. Taylor, got some rodeo skills games. too. Right. Well, and I think, like you say, so Taylor is Robbie's son. Robbie has two children, Taylor and Robin. And Robin's actually a sports director um, out in uh, uh, West Texas. Get out of here. So, um, you know, she's kind of in the business, but she's on the other side of the, you know, she's on the mm-hmm. other side of the microphone. And right. She's, she's interviewing the baseball players. And so I know it was a special moment when she got to interview Taylor when he threw his first pitch out. And, uh, yeah, he and was the opening day pitcher last year for the Rangers. And the Rangers got a really nice pitching staff this year. Everybody's all excited. But yeah, Taylor got to be the opening day pitcher in 2022. Right. And so that, that was, you know, a special moment for all of them, for him being, getting to come home, you know, obviously oh, yeah. is the main thing. Uh, 
you know, Harlan's got two girls, twin daughters, and they're the one of them works in Phoenix, works in works at the University of Houston. And so, you know, they're all doing things and they're all, uh, they all kind of grew up around the rodeo, but Taylor and Rachel, uh, Rachel is Eldon's uh, daughter. She's a barrel racer. And so Taylor and Rachel grew up rodeoing. So mm-hmm. they did, you know, junior roping and junior barrel racing. And then they got, when they got to be in 16, 17, Taylor basically decided to go the baseball route and focus on that, commit to that. Uh, Rachel's in her twenties and she's still riding, even though she, she just had a, a second baby. So she ridden the last eight, <laughs> you know, nine months. I'm just sitting here listening to you with a big old grin on my face. Hey, Liz, let's tell everybody what it's like when you go to a Cowboys of Color Rodeo. What's the kind of stuff that they get to see? Well, we always, we have the main uh, events that a PRCA rodeo have, which is bull riding and bronc busting. So bull riding is a big bull. That's a cowboy that has to stay on eight seconds Mm -hmm. uh, with one hand in the air and one hand on the rope. And then uh, bronc riding is uh, a horse. It's basically a horse that's unbroken and a horse that bucks. And uh, then we have uh, Cleo's favorite sport, which is calf roping. We have steer wrestling, which is the, wasn't the only event that was created by an African-American bill. Pickett, ah, people didn't know that, but they might've heard of bill Pickett. Yeah. They probably heard bill Pickett's name. And so he was a great cowboy called the dusky demon. He was in some movies and things like that mm-hmm. in, the, in the, you know, thirties and forties, but he was a cowboy out of Taylor, Texas. And, you know, a steer got loose in the crowd. Um, I think up in Madison square garden. And so, Everybody was screaming and hollering and running for their lives, you know, and he rode up into the stands, jumped off, grabbed that steer by the middle lip, bit it on the lip, drug it back into the arena. <laughs> and everybody thought it was a part of the show, <laughs> but it wasn't, but it became a part of the show. So and the next time they had a Wild wrestling. West show, guess what? Bill Pickett, they yeah. let a steer out and Bill went and jumped on him and to roll him over and bit him on the lip, you know? And, and so, uh, that's, he had seen the dogs do that. That's what they did. The dog, they would send the dogs into like cactus and thicket mm-hmm. and bushes and stuff. And the dogs knew they would bite the bull on the, the steers on the lip and they would, you know, they would follow them out of the thicket and stuff. And so he had seen that on the, you know, when he was working. And so, uh, that's how that came about. And then we have ladies barrel racing. We only have one female event. Uh, a lot of times some rodeos have team roping. We don't have team roping because we, we, we have cultural events mm-hmm. instead in between the rodeos. Cause we want to tell you about Escaramusas and Charros, which are the Spanish cowboys right. who came before us a lot, a lot of them. And they, they paved the way for a lot of the uh, cowboys and, uh, and things like that. And we still have a lot of their language, Lariat, you know, rodeo, those are all Spanish words, Hacienda, you know, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, which is a, a basically a, <laughs> you know, a ranch out. Yep. And so, uh, we talked about the Buffalo soldiers, you know, which was the black military that served after the civil war. And, uh, uh, there were four infantry troops and two cavalry troops. So we want those stories to be told. Um, because our audience that come, like you say, Chris, this is not your normal rodeo. Yeah. You know, we're, it's we're a little bit of everybody. Enter in Western music, George Strait. We love you, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're playing a little Aretha Franklin sure. or maybe uh wild, wild west with Will Smith. Yeah. Or, 
I you hear know, you. So our audience is excited. They're on their feet. They're clapping. They're yelling. They're cheering. It's you know, great family cowboys. fun. It's great family fun for everybody. And and I also there's nothing like it. You there's know? nothing you else like it. Experience it yourself. It's kind of like going saying, "Oh yeah, the girls of the the World Series. It's fabulous." Or the Super Bowl is fabulous. Well, you know, until you go and you're sitting amongst the crowd and everybody's screaming and hollering. You know, that's a totally different experience than watching it on TV or somebody telling you about it. Exactly. Now, you guys also do a lot of things with the kids in schools. Can you talk about some of the programs you guys do when you go visit the different schools and the programs that they get school kids involved with the with the rodeo? Yeah, sure. We, we've always, like you say, always gone out and spoken to schools or, uh, or, or corporations or nonprofits. Um, you know, everybody wants us to come in February for Black History Month. And we say, well, you know, we do Black History 356 days a year. There you go. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we can come in April. We can mm-hmm. come in July. We can come in October. And it's so funny, you know, we go out and talk and Cleo be there and somebody would say, well, Mr. Hearn, how long have you been a Black cowboy? All my life. <laughs> you love it. And Cleo said, well, I've been Black all my life. Yep. I've been a cowboy since I was about nine, you know, whatever. When I first met my first Black cowboy. And so... Uh, and it's so fun because Chris will tell you, we just did uh, Cleo Hearn, Mr. Black Rodeo. It's a children's book about Cleo's life. Uh, shameless plug here. Uh, go find that book. It's on Amazon. Oh, but good. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're doing some legacy celebrations to celebrate Cleo's 50 years and 70 years of rodeo um, history because he did pave the way. Yes, you know? he did. The reason there are other rodeos, the reason there's a Bill Pickett rodeo is because of Cleo. Okay. Mm-hmm. How do you think they got stock? How do you think they knew what to do, even though they did it over in California and other places? Um, you know, they, when they wanted to, when Lou Vuitton wanted to start that rodeo, he, you know, he, he didn't know who to talk to. And they said, call Cleo Earn. And of course, Cleo was happy to share any information and resources with him. Real Cowboy Association. We used to have a Real Cowboy Association that did a lot over in Mississippi and Louisiana and places like that in East Texas. Um, you know, those people ask us to do the rodeos, but we couldn't take on anything else. So mm-hmm. we had somebody else that we knew uh, create those rodeos and, uh, you know, give that opportunity to those uh, people in those areas. So Cleo was always mentoring other people. He was always paying you know, the fee for the professional cowboy association, the membership fee for kids that, you know, he thought were really going to do well. And, and we've had some great champions come through our system. You know, we love, uh, we love Cleo Hearn and we're glad that he's finally getting the recognition that he deserves. Like you say, inducted in the national cowboy museum and hall of fame, Oklahoma, the mm-hmm. Texas sports hall of fame here in Dallas, the African-American museum. And, and just last uh, month at the uh, Texas Cowboy Hall of Fame over in Fort Worth. She is Liz Lawless. She's the executive director of the Cowboys of Color Rodeo. And we're thanking her for joining us. And we want to thank you for joining us on Better Living, a show about people and organizations having a big impact here in North Texas. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. So long, everybody. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.